Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. Well, it's January 1st. And on the calendars, and whether that's on a physical calendar, one of those archaic things that Brenda showed us there, or whether it's on your phone, what do we have? We have this spot that says New Year's Day. Now that's what it's called, right? That's what it says on the calendars. But I think it should officially be known as the day where you break your New Year's resolutions. I mean, let's be honest, a lot of times they don't make them very far, right? Uh, on the Canadian sitcom Corner Gas, uh, there's an episode where they talk about their uh, assorted uh, New Year's resolutions. And the main character, Brent, as they're sitting around celebrating with their friends, the main character, Brent, and his friends are having a discussion about their New Year's resolutions. And he tells us that he is going to give up chili cheese dogs in the new year. And everybody's kind of impressed because he's known for his eating of chili cheese dog. Well, as the episode continues in the next uh, 30 seconds or so, suddenly the party that they're at, they start to count down the new year. So the, so the camera moves away from Brent and his friends and sort of, sort of shows everybody counting down and, and hugging and kissing, doing what you do when the new year is being uh, brought in. Well, then the camera comes back to Brent, and dude is stuffing his face with a chili cheese dog, like right away. Now, obviously, that's for a comedic point, uh, but there's some truth to that, kind of like with all comedy, there's some truth to that, right? We usually don't last too long on our New Year's resolutions. They can be hard to stick to. Myself, personally, on Friday, I was considering what was I going to do for a resolution, and I, I decided, you know, I have a pretty good physical stack of theology and uh, church history books that I need to read, and then the digital stack is about 10 times higher than that one for books for my Kindle or for my Bible software. And I decided, you know, what, I'm going to focus on those, and I'm, I'm not going to buy more books. I have a problem. I, I acknowledge this. And so I sat there for a minute, and I, and I, of course, gave myself some caveats there. I you know, if there's something that's in a collectible series, I'm going to get that. Or if something that is in, that's sort of rare or is going to short print run, I'll get that. But generally speaking, I'm not going to get anywhere. I'm going to focus on reading what I have. I don't know that I was sitting there for five to ten minutes before I realized it was Friday. And it was the Ligonier Ministries $5 Friday sale again. Now, of course, I justified looking because it wasn't January 1st yet. For the record, I didn't buy anything. But my point is, sticking to anything is hard. Sticking with these type of resolutions is difficult. I mean, when we stop and think about it, if it was easy to keep these types of resolutions, the world would be a completely different place, wouldn't it? Now, this is true not only of uh, shopping habits, eating rhythms, or exercise rituals. It's true of spiritual practices as well. Whether we commit to being more diligent in prayer in the new year, or we want to develop a habit of Bible reading, it's, it's not easy. In fact, it's flat out hard. It is really easy to make a resolution. 
But borderline, I won't say impossible, but borderline impossible to actually keep them and stick with these kinds of things. Again, if, if this was easy, the world would be a completely different place. If doing the right thing or if doing the things that we really desired to do were easy, the world would be a different place, right? This is difficult. And so we land here in this passage of Luke, and, it, and it's a good spot for us to land right now because we're, we're finishing up this chapter 9 of Luke where we were before Advent, and then we're going to go to the Ten Commandments. But this passage really lends itself to today where we're at on the calendar because it talks about being faithful and remaining faithful and, and what it takes and the hardships that are found in that. And so it's a blessing that we are hearing these words from Jesus today as it, it fits with what might be going on in the world around us or in, in our personal lives. Now, as we come here to a verse, let's see, verse 49 of this passage, we need to remember the context that we have left behind here in the book of Luke. You'll maybe remember, again, I know a month was a long time ago, I've been preaching on it, and I still had to look up what the context was, so I'm going to make sure I review you because it's difficult to remember here. But you remember that we were in these passages where the disciples are wanting to know about their status in the ministry of Jesus, in the coming kingdom of Jesus. Remember, they think that Jesus has come to give the Romans the boot. They think that Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom, and so they want to know their position in it. They want to know whether they're going to sit on his right hand or the left hand when Jesus sets up his kingdom. They're looking for earthly power. And what's the message that we've seen in the book of Luke from Jesus over and over? What has he been driving home to us? That his path is not one of earthly glory. He didn't come for earthly conquest. He has come for the purpose of doing his mission, proclaiming the kingdom of God for the salvation of sins. And so the disciples have been, have been looking for this earthly glory. We've seen that in chapter 9. But Jesus is saying, no, my path is not one of earthly glory. My path is one of suffering. And so this context is really, really important for us as we are looking at these few verses this morning because it helps set up what we're reading today. It helps us feel the tension in the text. And we're going to see here that there are those who reject Jesus and there are those who receive him. Now, there are those who reject him, and we're going to understand that. That's a whole whole part of, of what is coming, right? That's a whole part of the suffering. But Jesus also lets us know that while these disciples are looking for this earthly glory, they're looking for, for status and popularity and power, Jesus is going to let us know that the people who do receive him are not going to have an easy path. This isn't going to be easy. There is a cost. There's a cost to following Jesus. And that's not only true for the disciples, but it's true for you and I as well. So let's get into this passage with uh, verse 49 of chapter 9, and, and we'll see what it has for us today. So we see here that John sees this guy. He's out casting, he's out, casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And these two verses here, they're short, but it shows us John being concerned about this person that they don't know casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Now, this might seem out of place and confusing and, and strange, 
to you and I, we, we wonder, John, What's up, man? Why are you concerned about this? They're they're casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Isn't this a good thing? Well, we need to remember the context. What did the disciples want? They wanted earthly position, earthly power. James and John, we know from not only Luke, but from other parts of the gospel, they're wanting to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus when he sets up his kingdom. So John is after earthly power. He's after position. So he's saying, hey, we're the inner circle here, Jesus. We're the guys who do this. What's going on with this other guy doing this? He's after this this influence that he believes is going to come from being a part of Jesus' inner circle. And so this short story, it reminds us that the disciples weren't about the kingdom of heaven. They weren't about the teaching of Jesus and proclaiming that What were they about? They were about what they thought was coming, the earthly thing that they thought was on the way. And so this story reminds us that they didn't have their perspective right either. They weren't concerned with the teaching of Jesus or the things of God. They were concerned about their own stuff. And so Jesus quickly sets John straight, doesn't he? He says, don't stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, we hear that passage. That, that's a rather well-known phrase. And, and we quickly automatically hear that. And we sort of set this up in the negative, don't we? We set it up. It's, it's often used as a phrase, if you're not with me, you're against me. We set it up that way. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's setting this up in the positive, isn't he? Hey, if he's not against us, he's for us. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, hey, if he's advancing the kingdom, if he is... Uh, proclaiming my name, he is doing my work. The point here isn't a proverb that Jesus is giving us to make us, uh, to give us, to make people feel like they're not on our team and they need to line up with us and get in line. That's what this phrase is usually usually used for. Go back to some of my uh, geekiness or nerdiness here. I immediately uh, go to the Star Wars movie, the Revenge of the Sith. Even Anakin Skywalker says to Obi-Wan after he goes to the dark side, hey, if you're not with me in this going to the dark side, you're against me. That's how this is set up. It's used in movies. We use it maybe even in our personal lives. If you're not with me, you're against me. It's to the negative. We use this to set up a black and white dichotomy between what we want and what somebody else wants. We use this to get people to move in our direction. But like I said... Jesus is using this in the positive here, isn't he? We might make a statement like Jesus has made here to influence someone, to join our team, but Jesus is using this to talk about somebody who's already on his team, somebody who's already following him. And so the message from Jesus here is to say that this person is doing the work of the kingdom. And this person seems to understand the authority that Jesus has against evil spirits. So why in the world, John, would we keep him from advancing the work of the kingdom of God? And so Jesus is saying here, I'm not going to limit the scope of my ministry by just having you few guys doing these things in my name. If he understands who I am, if he is proclaiming the truth of the kingdom, then why in the world would we stop him? Now before 
we move on to the next part of this, there is something important that we, that we have to talk about here. This, this isn't just a blanket statement of approval here for anyone who would invoke the name or the idea of Jesus. We still need to practice discernment, right? This man, this guy who was out casting out demons, if he was casting out demons, he was correctly using the name of Jesus, right? He wasn't proclaiming a false Jesus. He was using the name of the true Jesus. He knew the authority in his name. He understood it. He was invoking the name of the real Jesus. So in our time, there are many who will use the name of Jesus, but who they're talking about might look nothing like the actual real Jesus of history, the real Jesus of Scripture. And so we need to be careful. Even if somebody just says the name of Jesus, we need to make sure that we're comparing with what they're describing and who they're identifying. Is that the Jesus of, of Scripture, of who he is, or is it a false idol? Is it, is it someone that they have made up in the delusions of their mind? We have to show discernment. We have to trust that they're proclaiming the real Jesus, the Jesus revealed in Scripture, and we need to make sure we're doing that discerning work. And with the idea here of this person who approves of Jesus, we're seeing someone here who sees Jesus favorably. We're getting the idea of this. We're going to move on to the next passage, or the next portion of this passage, that, that shows us someone that does not receive Jesus well. Now this, this is important because we see here who, Jesus is reje- uh, who is rejecting Jesus and it shouldn't come as a surprise to the disciples. It's those Samaritans. Of course they're going to reject Jesus. Now in other parts of the Gospels, uh, Luke and, and in other Gospels, but also in the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, there are times where the Samaritans are used to sort of surprise us, to show us that, hey, the message of Jesus is going outside of the community of of Jewish people, of Hebrew people. That's often the case where, look, the message is going out. People are receiving Jesus everywhere. But here, Luke wants us to understand that Jesus is not being received. And as we come to this section, Look how Luke sets it up, okay? So, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Luke is preparing us for something here, isn't he? He's letting us know that Jesus is going to be rejected. Jesus is going to suffer. Jesus is going to die. We've read Jesus talking about his suffering before. And here, this rejection that we're seeing coming is Luke setting this up. It's foreshadowing what is going to come down the road. Now, what's interesting here about this is the reasoning that Luke gives us. The people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. That's like saying Jesus was rejected because Jesus is going to be rejected. Right? That's that's what it's saying. And that's kind of illogical, isn't it? He was rejected because he was rejected. But what's the point that Luke is driving home for us? What does he want us to understand? He wants us to understand that suffering is coming. 
He wants us to understand that the path that Jesus is on is not the path of approval, not the path of glory that the disciples are looking for, but he's on a path that is headed to the cross. And so with this is set up well for us here to understand this, we've seen the popularity of Jesus expanding all throughout the book of Luke, but now we understand where he's going and we see that it's the plan of God. And again, while it might seem illogical, what's amazing here isn't necessarily the rejection, the fact that they are ordained to reject Jesus, or that we're on this future path of rejection that we're going to see that we know is coming in Luke, but, but the words that, that the disciples use here. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, I know a lot of you have had times where you've been upset with people or you didn't like decisions that people made. Have you ever thought about having fire come down from heaven to consume them? I mean, we've got, we've got a pretty good view of the disciples. I mean, yeah, the, the New Testament does set them up as sort of guys who, who just don't get it at times, right? But generally speaking, we have a very positive view of the disciples, especially John. I mean, this is John saying this along with his brother James. We like John, man. He wrote the Gospel of John. Mm, like that. His epistles are great. Book of Revelation, we sort of struggle to understand, but man, that's good stuff. He's the author of Scripture, right? Uh, in the New Testament, lots of books. How in the world is John calling down fire from heaven to consume them? Now, before we get all judgy on John here, we need to understand why he would have done this. There's a passage in the beginning of the book of 2 Kings where forces from Samaria are going to arrest the prophet Elijah. And what happens? Fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. So while this isn't a good thing that John and James are suggesting, we now understand where this comes from. They're they're thinking, hey, if them Samaritans were going to arrest Elijah and they were consumed by fire, rejecting the Lord's Messiah that really deserves fire, right? That's their framework. That's their context. That's how they understand it. But we see here that Jesus doesn't want anything to do with that, does he? He doesn't want them to think this way. And now it's, we're told that he rebukes them. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke doesn't give us all the details of what Jesus says to them. Now, we know of course, we understand that the message of Jesus is one of grace and one of mercy. And, and so Jesus isn't going to burn this village to the ground, is he? We, we know that. But also we have to remember that if Jesus is going to bring down fire from heaven on those who are going to reject him, the forecast from here forward in the book of Luke is going to be a lot of fire, even more than we have snow coming, right? We've had a lot of snow this winter. The forecast always seems like it's snow. But the forecast in the book of Luke, if you're going to burn down everybody who rejects Jesus, it's fire forward, right? Because we know the cross is coming. We know rejection is coming. It wouldn't just be these Samaritan villagers who would be burned to a crisp. And it wouldn't just be the people in Jerusalem who are screaming for the criminal Barabbas instead of the Lord. It wouldn't just be them. It would have to be the disciples too, wouldn't it? Because they ran away. It wasn't just the Samaritans 
who are rejecting Jesus here. Everybody is going to be rejecting Jesus. Everyone is going to turn away. His closest, one of his closest friends and one of the disciples, Peter, is going to deny him. They would all deserve fire. And so the feeling that we get here is that this is Jesus against the world. And this is why the passage closes up with Luke telling us about the cost that is involved in following Jesus. Now, there are, there are some familiar phrases in here, but they all point to one thing. We're not going to look at all of the phrases in detail, but the point is that following Jesus isn't easy, and it requires sacrifice. The world will be against you if you follow Jesus. That's the point. And the first phrase we see here is Jesus telling this man, I will, uh, who says he's going to follow him wherever he goes, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What he's saying is, hey, I know you want to follow me. It looks good. But the path I'm headed on, we're not going to have people looking after us. There isn't going to be a place for me to lie. Even foxes, even birds have places, but the Son of Man is going to be rejected and he's going to have nothing. And you and I, as humans, we, we have a natural tendency to want comfort and, and shelter is a very vital part of that, isn't it? But here Jesus is saying that following his ministry, that means that you're going to be headed to suffering in Jerusalem and that's going to mean anything but comfort. That's the point that he's driving home. He's saying, hey, you want to follow me but following me is going to be hard. And then the next statement that we see, Jesus calls someone to follow him, but the man says, I, I want to go and bury my father first. Now that seems like a reasonable statement on the surface, doesn't it? We might read that and we might assume that, that, he just want, that his father just died and, and he wants to go have the funeral. But, but honestly, what's the likelihood of that? That's, that's not really probably what has happened. Chances are, is that he was putting a qualifier on when he was going to follow Jesus. He wasn't ready to do it right now, and so he was pushing it off until after some important family obligation could be taken care of. Uh, gentlemen, this is kind of like when your wife's, you're in the middle of doing something, and your wife says, hey, could you do this or that? And you say, yeah, I'll do it later. And you have no intention of doing it later. That's, that's, what this, that's what this smells like to me. I'm sorry to give away the plot, guys, but ladies, that happens. I mean, at least it does for me. I just guess I gave myself up more than anybody. But that's what this seems like. like. Like, he doesn't want to commit. He isn't ready for this. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you're going to follow me, it requires sacrifice. You, you need to go now. You can't wait. And then the final one that we see here drives home this point even further. He says to this man, he, he wants to do something noble here. He wants to go say farewell to his family before he follows Jesus. But Jesus says, hey, anyone who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, that's a harsh statement from Jesus. I mean, it's almost hard to read these statements. So let the dead bury their own dead and no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back it's hard to read those statements and not go, Jesus, man, those are tough. I, I don't know that I could do that. And that's the point. That's the point. Are we willing 
to follow Jesus? Are we willing to forsake everything? That's the point. The point he's driving home is this idea that allegiance to Jesus and to the kingdom of God requires great sacrifice. It requires our commitment. And again, we can't even start to understand these statements without the context of the suffering of Jesus that you and I know Jesus is headed to. Because even the guys who have given up everything, remember the disciples gave up everything, they did what these guys weren't willing to do. Jesus said, follow me, and they did. Even those guys are going to turn their back on Jesus. We know that when he gets to Jerusalem, and, and he is arrested, they're going to scatter. So the message here reminds us that this is hard. The message here is about the commitment that the kingdom of God is going to require. Because we are going to be opposed, not only by Satan and the forces of darkness, we are going to be opposed by the world. This is not easy. And if we're going to remain strong, if we're going to remain faithful in the face of hardships, in the face of adversity, and even in the face of persecution, we have to put our hand to the plow and not look back. We need to follow Jesus in faithfulness. And so, as we close up today, as I mentioned at the open, this is a great passage for us as we begin this new year. You may or may not have made a spiritual commitment as one of your New Year's resolutions. But regardless of what your resolutions are, it's vital that we understand what Jesus is saying to us, his people here. In our pursuit of God, it's important that we remember that this is never going to be easy. We like to think that if we can do a few spiritual things here and there, it's going to line things up for us and life is going to be great. And that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. As I said, we're not only going to be opposed by Satan, we're going to be opposed by the world. The world is inherently in opposition to the things of God. Therefore, we need to prepare to face the adversity that is before us. We need to put our hand to the plow and not look back as we desire to be God's servants in his world. And how do we do this? We don't do this by focusing on our work. We don't continually be self-absorbed in ourselves and and think that we can do it, that, that we can succeed if we just put forth enough effort. This isn't like the other resolutions that we make. It doesn't come from within us. It comes from God. It comes from focusing on the Savior that we serve. In the face of the adversity and persecution of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ did not look back. He did not turn from his appointed path of suffering. Instead, what do we remember that we read that he did? He set his face to Jerusalem. And that was to suffer and that was to die, to bear the wrath of God for our sin. He did this all for us. And so we look to this message of the gospel that he is headed to sacrifice himself for us, that he does this for us, we remember that message and that message with, that comes to us through the power of the Holy Spirit builds us up in faith and gives us the courage to stand strong, to put our hand to the plow and not turn back, to motivate us to live in obedience 
to Christ today and in the coming week and in the coming month and in this coming year. And so we also use this good news to motivate us even when the force of adversity does begin us. Remember, I mentioned the devil and the forces of darkness, and I mentioned the world, but often, you know who the greatest adversity that you will face is? It's you. It's your sinful nature, your total depravity within you. You can be the greatest force in opposition to your progress. And so that is why it's important that we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Because he died and suffered and died. Forgive us of that sin. To forgive us of our own opposition to the things of God. He is the one who puts us back on the path. He is the one who forgives us. He is the one who declares us righteous for his sake. So, knowing that truth, that assurance that we have, we can walk in newness of life. Even when we're the opposition, we can walk in newness of life and continue forward trusting that the Word and the Holy Spirit will help us to return to the plow even when we have turned away from it so that we can push forward in faith, working for the kingdom, advancing the message of God because we have been saved from our sin. We have been saved from death and hell by the faithful work of Jesus for us. So may we put our hand to the plow and proclaim the message of the kingdom that the name of Christ might be glorified. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.